Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. We have a great show today. This is an unusual, an unusual topic with a, with a guest that has is, is like a kindred spirit. Um, we're going to be talking about the 1960s, the Beatles, and space exploration with Ron Grossmer. And he wrote a book called Into the Sky with Diamonds. It's a fabulous book. It says the Beatles and the race to the moon in the psychedelic 60s. Now, I kind of remember the 1960s, which will, which will, I guess, assist in this interview. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. We have so much in common. We both are radio people. You have a radio show. What's your radio show? It's uh, Beatles and Friends. It's at the Pauling Public Radio, WPWL, from Pauling, New York. And, and where would you find that on either the internet or the dial, depending on whether you're in your office or in your car? Mostly the internet. They're about to put in a, a new antenna that'll reach 50 miles, but right now it's mostly at Pauling, P-A-W-L-I-N-G, PaulingPublicRadio.org. All right, great. And then what's your show on? It's on at 1230 on Saturdays, and then it's rebroadcast on Sunday mornings at 9 and on Friday mornings at 9.30. And, believe- and the radio show now has its own website, by right. the way. And Thanks th- to your urging. <laughs> Every radio show has to have uh, yes. a website. So that's BeatlesAndFriendsRadio.com. And now you also have an archive? Yes. Uh, if you go to Mixcloud, uh, you, you can get all my prior shows, and they're indexed by topic. So you go to Mixcloud forward slash Pauling, P-A-W, Pauling Public Radio, and then um, this list, playlist, you click Beatles and Friends, and then there they are. All right. So when you were growing up, did a lightning bolt hit you and you were like, wow, and there's all this rock and roll music emerging, there was the Beatles. Yeah, Uh, I can remember when it happened. So let's, let's hear about the aha. Well, I was modestly into music when I was when I was a kid, I took piano lessons. I was reasonably okay. I wasn't passionate, and I would listen to the radio, but I wasn't passionate about that either, although I enjoyed it. And then in January 1964, I had just barely turned 10, and there it was. Suddenly, I turned on the radio one day, and I heard a song, and I, I'd never heard it before, and that was the bolt of lightning. And then when I got to school the next day, Everybody had heard it also. It was, I want to hold your hand. And, of course, the rest is history. It was a number one song, and then the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I remember that moment, and I remember going to a party, a girl in my class, Eve Miller. She had a birthday party, and she had an album by the Beatles that I'd never seen before. It was called Meet the Beatles. And I Want to Hold Your Hand was on that album. I scrunched together my pennies from my allowance, and I had to go out and buy that album. And of course, the only record player I had was like a kid's record player. I don't know if you remember them. It's like a a hat box. You know, you could fold it and carry it with you. It had its own handle. (laughs) Yeah, it had a handle. You know, and it was sort of red. I don't know. And 
I, I played that, that. That album was the only record I had in my collection, and all I did was play it all day long. Now, share share with with me. Did you did you watch the thing spin around as if something was actually going to happen? Because I did that. Oh, when, you're, you're mesmerized <laughs> by it. You know, now, you've got one eye on the record that's turning, and the other eye on the album, and you're looking at the picture on the front, and you're looking at the picture on the back, and you're reading the blurb. And you're, reading, you're looking at the credits, you know, who wrote what song and who's singing what. And, yeah, I mean, it's a total, total fascination. You're practically hypnotized by that thing turning around. You know, you know what's interesting? It was very tactile, unlike today and, and listening to music today. You know, you were holding the album. You were touching it. Uh, you, yeah. you know, it was – where, where did you buy records? I went to Corvettes. That's oh, I, yeah. Well, uh, there was uh, Sam Goody's on 42nd Street. Uh, in Manhattan, and that was a regular pilgrimage for me, and that's where I think early on I, I probably got most of my albums. Um, I can remember buying what I thought would be my last album. Uh, my parents did not take kindly to my spending my allowance on this awful music of the Beatles, and so when Beatles 6 came out, uh, I sort of semi-promised, but I had my fingers crossed behind my back, <laughs> that this would, this would really be the last Beatles album I would get. And of course it wasn't, but I went to Sam Goody's really downtrodden, thinking, ah, I just told my parents that this would be it. Well, it wasn't. So did you begin collecting Beatles memorabilia then or no. later on? No. I started collecting maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, my wife's um, uh, stepfather uh, was a major collector in the field of antique American firearms and swords, nothing to do with music. But he inspired me to start collecting. He would put together a collection and write a book about it. And then uh, one day I thought, well, I could do that, but what am I going to do it on? And then I walked in, it was in Aspen, Colorado. There was a store called Great Stuff, which is a good name. And all they had was sports and music memorabilia. And I saw a Meet the Beatles signed by all four of the Beatles. Wow. And I thought, ah, oh, that is great stuff. And that got me started. Do you remember Colony Records? Yes, of course. But that's a latecomer. Uh, although, wait a second, no, Colony Records on Broadway. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a fantastic place. They had all kinds of... I was of, thinking Tower Records. No, no, Colony Records was great. They had, I, you know, I, I used to go to Colony Records and you'd see all these, you know, autograph things. And, yeah. You know, or pink vinyl. <laughs> you know, you saw yeah. all this great stuff. And the truth is, you know, in its day, Tower Records was just was just the greatest place to hang out for a couple hours. Uh, yeah. you, you'd look through all the albums and... In many ways, uh, you would discover all kinds of music because you would just look for artists that you liked, and all of a sudden, hey, it's the new Jethro Tull album, or it's oh, the new this. Yeah, I was a new... huge Jethro Tull fan. I just went to hear the Martin Barr, the Jethro Tull guitarist, ah. last week uh, at BB King's club. I, I was a, the first album I ever purchased was War Child. So, and then I bought Aqualung after that. I kind of went in reverse order, but my, yeah. I had a cousin, Gary, and he used to play. He was a huge Jethro Tull fan, and he played all the time. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then I remember the back of the album, there were pictures, and they kind of represented, you know, the, 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 the song. It was like the, the picture, 
like you'd see like for queen and country. So you're, you saw like a queen and there was like war child. There was this, there was that. And, um, uh, you know, you're a seal with a ball at the carnival. So there was, you know, uh, two fingers. There was, or we're skating away. It was all this stuff. And, you know, it's just fascinating to just look at the lyrics, look at the back of the album. And they, they did the, 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 the front cover was like a sort of a reverse photo image. So it was, it was like, what was color was like black and white almost. It was, it was very, very surreal to look at because, because I was a kid, but it had a major impact. And I became a Jethro Tull fan because of that. Yeah, you know, I'm a strange Jethro Tull fan to the extent that I'm a huge fan of their first four albums. So like the reverse of you in a sense, and most people. And then after Aqualung, I sort of lost interest for some reason. Uh, I know there's living in the past and bungle in the jungle and uh, skating away. But those first four albums, to me, were like, whew. Yeah, Ian Anderson is just truly brilliant, you know, on a business yep. level and as a musician. And do you remember when Thick as a Brick came out and they had that whole yeah. newspaper? <laughs> no, I definitely remember. Th- I was in college. I definitely remember Thick as a Brick. You know, so so let's let's go back to the Beatles because we'll do we'll do yeah. a Jethro Tull show another right. time. All right. So talk about your progression for your love of the Beatles before we get into all the great space stuff. So you're 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 continuing and you're loving the music. You got your six albums in, and you're beginning to collect stuff. Some point later on, but this this love is building. What's where it's where is it going, and how is it forming? Well, interestingly, it's not so much. If this were a mathematical curve, it's not a gradual uphill thing. It it skyrocketed and it never came down. Okay. If you wish. I mean, I was as big a fan the minute they arrived in America as I ever was. And it's just that most people, once the initial excitement comes down, eh, you know, the excitement, like of anything, maybe dies down a bit. But for me, it just never died down. It's like being a sports fan of a certain team when you're a kid. And then when you're 40, 50, 60, whatever years old, you're, you're still that fan. Oh, yeah. Now, did you know anybody who actually went to the 64 show at Shea Stadium? Uh, I know. Well, I met somebody. I, they're not friends. I was once at a party, and they said, you know, I was at that show. You know, It's like, oh, that's, that's obviously pretty cool. You know, she was like 13 years old or something. Um, because anybody who would have been at that show was either a parent or a young teenager. Right, right. Because initially, that was the Beatles fan base. And that's how adults viewed the Beatles. You know, this was for teenagers, which is why my parents were really not thrilled. But isn't that all about rock and roll? <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, if you appeal to the adults, then you you haven't made it as a rock and roll band. So, so how did you, you you started really? So you skyrocket out there, okay, and you're loving it. And and over the years, how is that? You know, obviously, at some point, you know, you wrote a book about the Beatles, and you have a show dedicated to Beatles music. But in, in between, there must have been some really cool stuff and some breakout moments. Um, yeah, um, to the extent that I would continue to buy whatever. Not only did I break my promise to the parent, my parents about, <laughs> you know, but, you know, whatever McCartney released, I, you know, I would buy. And then most of what the other guys would release, I would also buy, although maybe not, not everything. So uh, I just continued to be totally into their music. Um, and then, then came the idea of writing, writing a book. 
but until then, I don't know if there was a specific aha moment, except for when I ran into Paul McCartney, and I mean literally, I nearly knocked him over, uh, on a Long Island beach, which is a story in of itself. And that, that was a fun moment. It's like, I can't believe I nearly ran into <laughs> Paul McCartney. It was right at the edge of the beach, and he, he was yanking his young son out of the water just as I was jogging by, and so nearly hit me. Well, anyway, but that was uh, that's not really a musical aha moment. Did, did you shove a book at him? Or? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, pardon me. <laughs> right. I just happened to have it in my pocket in my bathing suit. So, um, so how did the radio show come about? Well, the radio show is, you know, it's, it's interesting. You have the law of unintended consequences. You, you do something, and then it takes you places you never imagined. So when I wrote the book, I never imagined... I would have a radio show. Uh, but somebody in Pauling, New York, uh, has my book, and they're in charge of looking for content for the radio station. And so they asked if I would be interested. And I thought, well, I, I don't know anything about radio. I would be terrible at that. I mean, I have no training. And then she said, no, but I've heard you give your presentation. You don't need any training, just just talk the way you talk at your presentation, pick a topic and pick some songs. And that's what I did. That's what I'm still doing. Wow. So when did that, when did that first happen? It was mm, pretty much exactly three years ago. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And you'd think you'd run out of topics, but I never run out of topics, just like you never run out of topics. Uh, Some of my shows center around a word like together. So how many songs can you think of with or colors or weather or women's names? And then it's always some, somebody's anniversary or some album's anniversary and this summer is the summer of love so i'm not going to run out of topics this summer that's for sure and and you know what and and the truth is paul and ringo are still out there you know on the road doing things and uh, sadly george martin died not that long ago so that was you know yeah that was a whole show you you know george martin george martin the producer of the beatles didn't just do the beatles uh, he also produced, I forget what other, now it's, it's, uh, I'm blanking on it, but he produced other well-known people. And so I just did a show of his songs with maybe one Beatles song in it, but of his other well-known people in his stable. It, that must have been, uh, think about this. What are the odds of getting four guys together? Zero who had this incredible synergy that was sort of like nuclear fission. You know, we hit critical mass and you get this incredible burst of energy to meet a guy like George Martin, who's nothing like them, right? He's classically trained in this and that. And he's older and, you know. Yeah, he was old. He was in his 30s. But yeah, but, (laughs) but, but he was older and he was like really of a different mindset. And, and a different orientation musically. And yet you put these five people together and the world of music was t- shaken upside down. Well, you know what they had in common, interestingly enough, and it had nothing to do with music. Because George Martin produced classical music, but he also produced comedy, interestingly enough. And he thought the Beatles were funny. He thought, just listening, you know, the the banter among them, he thought they were amusing, and he thought they would be fun to work with. Yeah, they were fine, you know, musically they were fine, you know, nothing great, but, you know, they were fine. But he thought, yeah, I could work with these guys, I'm going to have a good time. 
And that's what got him to sign them, and of course, turned out to be oh, a grand <laughs> slam home run. But that was the that was their common ground. You know what was great about the Beatles is to watch them about with press conferences. Yeah, they, exactly. they really were funny. <laughs> exactly, that's totally it. I mean, any number, and in fact, uh, the gentleman you interviewed, what's his name? Kevin Howlett. Yes, he discussed. Uh, you, the two of you discussed how they were. They were quick. They were funny. They always had. There were four of them, so there was always one of them who had something witty to say. So the press, they were, you know, they made for great copy. They did, and 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 the thing is, the they they really sort of, I'd say, over overpowered the press because the press kind of were like, you know, sort of almost sort of naive and serious, and they'd ask these questions, and they'd come in with these really dry, yeah. <laughs> sarcastic answers. And, and it would be like, wow, that's really funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, the press initially were, were I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say they were hostile, but they were certainly not friendly. And they looked down on the Beatles because they have, the Beatles had a ridiculous name. And they looked ridiculous, but they all looked like Mo from the Three Stooges, you know, with their hair over their forehead. And uh, the press thought that this whole hoopla was overblown. And as you said, but the Beatles deflected their questions with, with humor. One of the reporters said to him, and, and exactly when do you plan on getting a haircut, young man? You know, something like that. And one of the Beatles said, oh, we just had one yesterday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which was totally deflating. All right, well, we come back. That was a very fast first segment. We come back. I'm going to ask you about the number of barbershops that had to uh, tank yeah. because of the Beatles. We'll be right back. Keep it locked here on Taking Care of Business. Welcome back, Richard Solomon, and my very, very special guest, uh, Ron Grelsimer, who is an, an expert on a lot of things, including, and as they say in the law, but not limited to, yeah. uh, the Beatles and space exploration. Now, before we get into space, I had a question from before the break, which was about haircuts. Um, how many barbershops <laughs> went out of business because the Beatles were the forefront of the long hair movement? Yeah. Well, actually, on my shelf, I have a very skinny book about the history of barbershops in America through the ages. It has nothing to do with the Beatles or anything else. But there is a section on the Beatles because in the barbershop world, the Beatles were like locusts, not Beatles. They were a disaster from uh, the time the Beatles arrived to the end of the decade, meaning the end of the 60s. 80% of barbershops in America had closed. It was a disaster because men didn't go to get their hair cut anymore. They cut it themselves and or let it, let it grow long. Um, and they grew beards. <laughs> they grew beards. Yeah. So the grooming, the men's grooming industry, you know, totally tanked. You know, and guys would be at home and they would blow dry their hair. I remember blow drying my hair. Uh, and, um, do you remember bro cream? Yeah. Well, that was before the Beals, you know, a little dabble do you. And you know, that quote wet look went out and yeah. was replaced with the dry look. You wouldn't be seen with any junk in your hair as a guy anymore. All right. So now I want to, we want to transition to 
How's this for a transition? So the only people left with short hair were astronauts. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you had the over 30 and the under 30. All right. So let's talk about now. I've, I've been to the, the, the Kennedy Space Center, and I saw the uh, vehicle assembly building. And for all of those people out in Long Island, you must check out the Cradle of Aviation Museum where the Nassau County Coliseum is, which is called now the Lighthouse. And what was very interesting is they have an exhibit about Grumman, because Grumman were the, was the, 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 the people who built the lunar module. And you'll actually see uh, space uh, paraphernalia, including, I think, one of the uh, lens, the lunar modules. Yeah. And I remember as a kid buying from Ravel the uh, command module, the service module, and the lunar module. And then you kind of put them all together, and you painted them the black and white, and you put the little USA thing on there. And, you know, as a kid, that was like the biggest thing. And I remember they had these kind of like black and white helmets that Neil Armstrong wore and, and yeah. underneath the helmet. And I, I also, I, I used to live in D.C. for a while. And uh, at the Air and Space Museum, they have a lot of the capsules and things like that. What was astonishing to me was when you look at the command capsule, it's really small. Yeah. It looks really cramped. I mean, and yet it's roomy compared to the Gemini and the Mercury <laughs> capsule. Right. Um, one of the shows that I did was a celebration of Yuri Gagarin and the 50th anniversary of the first person in space. And I actually went to the Cradle of Avi Aviation Museum and talked to some of the people who were part of the Soviet uh, space program. Uh, what was that like? Because I remember the whole Sputnik thing caused the whole commotion and the space race. And I, and they always show Kennedy saying that by the end of the decade, there'll yeah. be a man on the moon. And that was a big campaign promise. And even though he didn't live to see it, he delivered on it. And what's interesting, he made that speech right after Alan Shepard's flight. Now, Alan Shepard was the first American in space, but he didn't go around the Earth. He, his was a cannonball shot. Yuri Gagarin, the Russian guy, went around the Earth a few times. Uh, Alan Shepard went up 60 miles and came down. But it was space. We had a guy in space. And that was enough to, for Kennedy to, pardon the expression, launch into his speech about how we would beat the Russians. Or we, we, He didn't say anything about beating the Russians. He said we would get a man to the moon and back by the end of the decade. Now, when, when that was really said, did people believe it, as well, opposed a, to hope? A, they didn't really believe it, and more importantly, they didn't – it was ridiculous to think we, we could beat the Russians. It would be like a team, a baseball team, at this point in the season, already being 15 games out of first place, and somebody saying, we're going to win the World Series. You'd be, yeah, you know, it's middle of May, and you're 15 games out of first place. I don't know. It was a little bit like that. I mean, again, the Russians had already gone around the earth, and the Americans had just launched a cannonball. The Russians were way ahead of us, and they would remain way ahead of us until the mid-60s. Let's talk about some of the science of space. Did, we lived in an analog world at the time. How did all of the science work in, in terms of space exploration and, and calculations? I know in your book you have this great little statistics that talk about the difference between a 360-degree calculation for the purposes of measuring landing versus 
And apparently that's a couple hundred miles difference. And that made, that's a big deal. <laughs> right. In other words, when they first started to calculate with slide rules and very rudimentary computers that took up the size of an entire room and had less power than the, uh, the free calculator you get at, when you open an account at a bank, um, they, uh, they forgot to factor in the fact that the the Earth turns a little bit in a in a one hour space flight, the Earth will not be in the same position that it was in when the astronaut took off because in that one hour it'll have turned, and so initially these capsules were landing hundred two hundred miles off target. Why? You know, well, <laughs> because yeah, the Earth wasn't exactly where it was when they took off. Now I remember. And I still have it somewhere. I have the G.I. Joe with the space capsule. Ah. And that was a big thing because it was sort of like a Gemini capsule. Uh, you, and you put your G.I. Joe in and you slid the little plastic thing over and, and it was like a Mercury uh, Well, capsule. you see, they did what I did. They combined the super popular G.I. Joe with the super popular space program. And I combined the super popular Beatles with the super popular space program. Now, where, where did your love and interest of space come from, and where where did that start? Because you you seem to really follow the whole in your book. You really seem to follow the space program, really from like almost Sputnik, and then all of the little minutia that it's it's really forgotten today. You know about Gemini, Mercury. Yeah. You know everybody kind of knows like Apollo, and then sort of the space shuttle, and they don't really. And I remember like watching some of your really cool uh, lectures. Well, where you. you show pictures of people and you know if you if you said these are the 10 most wanted people in America name them nobody would be able to to say who they are yeah but at the time they were household names and what's fascinating is that every mercury gemini mission was a near fatal total disaster but it wasn't they just they made it back alive, but each mission was nearly a total disaster. But of course, NASA put its base best foot forward. You know, they highlighted the fact that every mission broke some kind of record, and they didn't really let everybody know that it was a near disaster, that the astronauts nearly died. But all this stuff came out later, and of course, that's what I put in my book. But how I got interested was like every other kid. You would be in school, and the, you know, they would stop school for an hour because on TV everybody was going to watch some Mercury or Gemini rocket take off. And yes, every mission something new and exciting happened. And that was enough to get you totally excited. Now, remember, I was uh I turned 10 in December of 63. So I don't have a personal recollection of Alan Shepard or Gus Grissom. I retroactively took an interest and read everything I could. My personal memories begin pretty much with John Glenn. He was the first guy to circle, the first American to circle the the Earth. And there's an interesting story behind that. Everybody thought he would be the first American in space because he was the most articulate of all the Mercury astronauts, and he got on great with the press, and he was everybody's favorite, and everybody thought it was a real bummer that he wasn't the first guy. Not, not only was he not the first guy, he wasn't even the second guy, because Gus Grissom was the second guy. 
Glenn was only going to be the third guy, and he was scheduled to just go up and down like the first two guys did, which was not very exciting. But NASA moved up the timetable, and the first two flights having gone so well, they decided that Glenn would be the first guy to go around the Earth. And, of course, that's a lot more exciting than just going up and down. <laughs> so that's part of the reason why everybody remembers John Glenn and doesn't necessarily remember Alan Shepard. How cool was it that he got to go back in space, you know, all those years later? Yeah, in his 70s. He's, he's still the oldest guy to have ever been, you know, in space. It's, it's absolutely amazing. The guy was the real deal. He was a real American hero. He was totally selfless, wasn't in it for the money. You know, these days you become a little bit famous and the next thing you know, you're, you know, you got a perfume or some cologne <laughs> and a line of clothes and sneakers. But none of these astronauts were like that. Neil Armstrong also was, you know, very modest. You know, he gave credit to all the people around him. He kept saying he was lucky. He was the guy who happened to be chosen for Apollo 11. It could have been the guys in Apollo 12, 13, or 14 who were the first guys on the moon. Right, so where were you in July of 69? I know I yeah, I was, I was camping in the French Alps. I was high up in the mountains. It wasn't even a campsite. We had just pitched a tent by a stream. And the moon landing we listened to on a little transistor radio. Um, and for us, it was like 2 or 3 in the morning. And uh, there we were huddled, listening to uh, the moon landing under a tent in the, high up in the French Alps. Wow. I, I remember my father taking 35-millimeter pictures of the TV because there was almost no way to record what yeah, you were seeing. Yeah, of course, right. And that was sort of a way of capturing. Now, all we have are pictures of the TV because the flash <laughs> took the image out. But, you know, it was such a... That's funny. You know, my grandmother was born in the late 1800s. And... And I asked her, I said, what was it like? It's funny, I was a little kid, but I said to her, what was it like to see sort of the progression from like the horse and buggy to a moonshot? And she really couldn't explain, you know, in, in any real terms, how in her lifetime, they went from some of the most primitive living conditions, you know, you know, you know a donkey, yeah. you know, in the, in the back of the house, you know, is sort of the, uh, the car, uh, when they lived in, in Greece, to seeing, you know, on a colored television in Queens, New York, you know, a, a man being televised that's not even from Earth. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, it's hard to imagine today because a rocket taken off is like no big deal. The excitement that was generated, I mean, when Alan Shepard went up and his little dinky rocket that was a pencil People stopped their cars on the highway, like I-95. People stopped their cars and got out of their car to listen to their transistor radios, because, of course, the cars didn't have radios. So you have to imagine I-95 at a standstill, which I know happens every day, but at a standstill on purpose, because people wanted to get out and they wanted to listen to the broadcast of that flight. That's how exciting it was. And people cried, you know, and he had a ticker tape parade. He had gone up and down. All he had done is gone up 60 miles and come down. Well, I, I was an attendee at Admiral Farragut Academy, and uh, they named a hall after him. So to all my fellow cadets who listen uh, to this show, 
that was that was part of our our youth. Yeah, you know yeah. these naval aviators are so unbelievable. The thought of landing a jet plane in the fifties or sixties without all the computerized things that bring you down like a drone. You had to do this all on your own. The fact that you could land on an aircraft carrier, which looks big when you're standing on it, but looks tiny when you're up in the sky. And to think that they landed at night on an aircraft carrier, and to think that they landed in storms on an aircraft carrier, and to think they landed in storms at night on an aircraft carrier. I mean, the skill that these guys had. And not only that. Unbelievable. Not only that. But, you know, the plane is moving. The ship is moving, and there's ocean current and yeah. wind. <laughs> you got every, and the Earth is turning. <laughs> right. So you know, so I, I actually was very fortunate that the United States Navy allowed me aboard the USS Bataan for Fleet Week, ah, and cool. I got to film uh, all the flight ops. And it's a helicopter landing dock, as they call them, and uh, and they have the Harrier type jump jets, and it's amazing to see how they come in. Um, and I've seen videos where they've had to come in, you know, sort of like you said, at nighttime and bad weather, <laughs> you know, high seas. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just blows my mind. You know, and you know, sort of, you know, what, what they they did. I don't know. Was it the European Space Agency? They landed some kind of space vehicle on a meteor, and and think about that math. Yeah, where, yeah. <laughs> you know, think about what it was like to take like maybe a small car. Launch it into space and have it meet up on a moving rock. <laughs> well, that's you know, just think of you know, just getting to the moon. It's the ultimate quarterback bomb. You know, the quarterback doesn't throw the ball where the receiver is. He throws the ball where he thinks the receiver is going to be when the ball lands. And the moon is sweeping across the sky, and it takes three and a half days to get there. So you are aiming for a point in space where you think you but you're hoping. Talk about slide rules. You know, you're hoping, you're praying that the, the moon is going to arrive at the right time. Otherwise, if you get there a little too soon, you're going off into deep space. And if you get there a few minutes late, you crash into the moon. You know, you don't want to hit the moon. You want to arrive 60 miles in front of the moon so that the Earth, moon's gravity grabs you and you start swinging around the moon. That's how precise you have to be. And it's 325,000 miles away. It's, so it's like you're saying, you know, shooting up a car and having it land on a meteor. Do you an remember? Asteroid. Do you remember Apollo 13? Not from the movie or from the current level of information, but when it actually happened. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. We only have yeah. a minute and a half, but could you kind of give us a little taste of what was that like? As someone reading the news, listening to the radio, you must have been riveted. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a moment of high high drama i mean now we know what happened and everything worked out worked out thanks to grumman you, <laughs> you were mentioning grumman they made the lunar module and the astronauts made it back thanks to the lunar module that's where they huddled on the way back and tongue-in-cheek grumman sent nasa a bill for a few million dollars for towing fees <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh Yes, I mean, you're riveting, and you don't have a zillion cable channels. You have the CBS Evening News, you know, with Walter Cronkite, whatever, To uh, so your, your sources are, are limited, and you're just waiting for, for news flashes, and they depicted that pretty well in the movie. All right, this, is, this radio show is moving at the speed of light. We'll be right back. This is Richard Solomon and Ron 
Grossimer, and we were talking about the Beatles in space, and we'll kind of get into some really cool topics, or as they say in the book, stay groovy. Hold on. Welcome back. This is an exciting radio show. This is Taking Care of Business, Richard Solomon, your host, and, and I have a, a fellow radio host, Ron Grossimer from Pauling yeah. Public Radio, who is an author and a radio host and an expert on space and, uh, and the Beatles. And one of the things we were talking about in pre-production was, let's talk about some anecdotes. So you, you have an anecdote about Gus Grissom? Yeah, you know, I like stories where there's a story behind a story. So the story is interesting, and you think the story's done, but no, there's another story behind it, which is makes it even more interesting. So Gus Grissom was the the second guy in space, and his flight, if you've seen uh, or read the right stuff, you know he went up, he went down, and the story everybody knows is that when the capsule landed in the water, the hatch blew, and suddenly the... The, the capsule was flooded with water, and, and Grissom jumps out, and the, cap, the, the helicopter above um, tries to get the capsule out. That's the story everybody knows. It's in the movie, whatever. But the other story that's fascinating is that Grissom nearly drowned. You see, he's sitting in the capsule, and he's in his astronaut suit, and he's got his helmet off. Why not? Mission's over. And when the water starts pouring in, he, he jumps out, right? And... Unfortunately, the helicopter above that's trying to keep the capsule from sinking is churning up the waters. There are huge waves, and the water's coming into his spacesuit, which is open around the neck. And he's getting heavier and heavier and heavier, and nobody's paying attention to him. He's waving his arms, and the capsule is sinking because it's filling with water. The helicopter's got its wheels in the water. It's being dragged in. All the lights go on turn red on the cockpit of the helicopter, and they finally decide they've got to let this capsule go. And only then do they turn their attention to Griffin, who's got, you know, who's, who's got his nose barely above the water. And so, of course, he survives, but that's an amazing story in and of itself. From then on, NASA changed the rules. They said, if there's an astronaut in the water and there's a capsule, you go for the astronaut first. Then you go for the capsule. It, it's almost like the story behind NASA at this time was almost cheated death again, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my next anecdote is another cheating death story. I'm, I'm telling you, every single, every single Mercury and Gemini mission was a cheating death story. So my, one of my other favorite stories with a story behind a story is Ed White's. Ed White was the first American to walk in space. Gemini 4, I think it was. Anyway, so his big moment comes. He opens the hatch. He drifts up into space. He floats around. He's having the time of his life. No American has ever experienced this. He sees the Earth the way no American has ever seen it. He takes beautiful color pictures. And after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, it's time to go back in. Mission over. Well, not really. As he tries to get into the capsule, he can't get back in. Why? Well, he, he doesn't fit. Well, why? He got out. Well, the vacuum of space caused his spacesuit to expand a little bit. And lo and behold, now he's like the Michelin man, and he can't get back in. 
And NASA has no provisions for that. You know, they try to think of every contingency, but they hadn't, they hadn't figured this would ever happen. So poor Ed White is there waiting for instructions, and NASA has no instructions to give him. Uh, John Young, who's still in the capsule, is preparing to cut Ed White loose. And Ed White would die in space, and John Young would have to come back all by himself, pretty much of a downer of a mission. The only thing left to do is somebody has the idea that maybe Ed White should try to open the valve of his spacesuit for a second, just a second. How, how, how do you do that? Because you don't really have dexterity in your fingers. Yeah, you've got these big clumsy yeah. gloves, so I don't know. But somebody suggests that you, know, you just try to open it. But, of course, the risk was that he would just explode, like putting a pin in a balloon. But since nobody had any other ideas, and he was going to die anyway, um, he said goodbye to his wife and his children, and he opened the valve for a second, and he closed it, and he didn't explode, and he was able to get back in. Now, at the time, NASA never told anybody that story. All that, as far as the American public was concerned, it was a spectacularly successful mission, which it was, and they left out this little detail. But there's another story. Remember I said there's a story behind the right. story? The Russians. The Russians. Yeah, Russians. So <laughs> Ed White was the first American in space, but he wasn't the first man in space. I mean, you know, to walk yeah. in space. The Russian, Alexei Leonov, was the first guy. And what do you think happened to him when he tried to get back into his capsule? I know the answer because I saw all your great you know, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't get back in. And the Russians didn't have any solutions, and they also told him to try to open his spacesuit, and that is what he did, and he made it back in. So you might say, well, how could the Americans be so stupid seeing as what happened to Leonov? Well, the Russians didn't tell anybody what happened to Leonov, just like the Americans didn't. So even though the exact same thing had happened to Leonov, the, Rus the Americans had no clue. And it's ironic or interesting that they both came up with the same solution, and it worked for both of them. What was the impetuous to have the design so that there be a release valve in the first place what was the, who because i wouldn't even think to have that i don't know that it was ever considered a release valve it was probably considered the filling valve <laughs> you know that's oh. how that's how you, you know, that's how you pressurize the suit and then when uh. you get you know when you get back in you just undo it and you get out of your suit you know, nobody ever thought of it as any kind of escape valve or, you know. That's fascinating. I have one quick anecdote. And I, uh, my father uh, actually was involved in the space program Ooh. because my father supplied the material that ended up being used in the underwear for the Mercury astronauts. Yeah, you know, there are all these zillion little details that nobody thinks of, but every tiny detail, you know, you're only as strong as the weakest link. Yeah. So all these, yes, the underwear, the gloves, the, the, the spacesuit, the, the people, the women who, you know, because they were women, you know, who had to sew the, the, the spacesuit together. And, of course, nobody had ever been in space. So how, how did you know what the requirements would be? But, yeah. Can you imagine being in space and you got itchy underwear? <laughs> the whole yeah. mission could be ruined. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, you know, how did, how did um, the astronaut... Uh, communicate with his family to say goodbye without it being all, sort of all over the news? Um, well, 
first of all, the news, didn't, they didn't always have the same access that they do today, and they had two different ways of communicating. There was an open channel that everybody could hear, and then there was a, another channel that not everybody could hear. Uh, sort of like Adam 12 when they used to say, go to TAC 2. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was basically it. I mean, when the Apollo 8 guys went up in space, um, Borman, who was the commander of the mission, got sick. And they didn't want the whole world to know that he got sick. So, I mean, he really, you know, he had the trots and, you know, you think that's, you know, try, you know, having a GI distress on Earth. Imagine in, a, in the confines of a capsule. Oh, yeah. That's fun. Oh. Right? So, anyway, but they didn't want everybody on Earth to be hearing about that. So, yeah, they communicated. So, have you ever had astronaut ice cream or any of those other cool things? Well, what's the name of the orange juice there? Tang. Tang, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, I don't know if they still sell that, but I remember I remember as a kid, it came in like a big glass container with yeah. like a, a plastic lid or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then it was orange and sweet, but it really didn't resemble. <laughs> no. But that is presumably what the, you know, all that food they had was reconstituted this or that. Yeah. So tell me some Beatles anecdotes. So the Beatles have some juicy anecdotes uh, also, or behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Everybody knows the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And uh, the story that everybody knows is that the Beatles had decided in England that they wouldn't come to America until they had a number one hit because so many of the other British stars, uh, Cliff Richards and so forth, had crashed and burned when they got to the States. And so they had a big hit with I Want to Hold Your Hand in January, and so they did the Ed Sullivan Show in February. Impossible. Even though that's the common story, there's no way that could have happened, if only because Ed Sullivan was the biggest show in America, and he would book his acts months before. So a better story is that Ed Sullivan arrived in London in October of 63, and he couldn't get off the plane. They wouldn't let anybody off the plane. In today's language, the airport was under lockdown. And what was happening? Well, he looked out the window and he saw a sea of people. And he was told that there was a dignitary that was arriving and they had to shut down the, the airport. And he figured, well, it's got to be the Pope. I mean, who else is going to shut down Heathrow Airport and have throngs of people? Well, it was the Beatles. And they were returning from a triumphant tour in Europe. And when he found out it was a rock and roll band, he figured, well, he'd never heard of them before, but anybody that big who was going to close down London Airport, he should have them on their show. And he took out his notebook, and oh, February 9th, I got got some openings. And that's really when the Beals were booked, not in January when they had the number one hit. Right. So that's just a little, now, there's little a, tidbit. I think you talk about a famous story that in between... Uh, the Shea Stadium show, they were going to go somewhere else. They, they, were, they were booked somewhere else. You tell two good stories. Um, one was somebody asked them to play a specific song, and they offered them oh. all kinds of money. And then they Yeah, said, that, that is. I had even forgotten about that anecdote. But that's that, a great yeah, story. A great, okay, I'll tell that. That's a great anecdote because it gives you an idea of their character. So on their first American tour, uh, they are scheduled to crisscross the country in totally random fashion. It's not like they'd gradually go from east to west or west to east. They were just, anyway. They had one day off in the middle of this crazy schedule on a Sunday. And Charles um, Finley, oh, Finley, Finley, 
who owned the Kansas City Athletics, decided he wanted the Beatles for that Sunday. And the Beatles said, no, listen, we're crisscrossing like crazy. We'll come to Kansas City on, a, on, a, on another tour. And he started to offer them crazy money, more money than Frank Sinatra or Barbara Streisand or the biggest stars of the day, until finally they said, okay, well, for that amount of money, all right, fine, we'll play, we'll do a show in Kansas City. And then he says, Finley says, all right, so listen, uh, do me a favor. I'm paying you all this money. I'd like you to play the song Kansas City, which is a 50s classic Lieber and Stoller uh, song. And of course, the Beatles knew that song. They started off as a 50s cover band when they were teenagers. But they didn't like the idea of being told what song to play. So they said, I'm sorry, we have our set list, and that's what we're sticking to. And Finley got upset. He said, for all the money I'm paying, okay, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you, I'll give you an extra million dollars if you play that one song. And they said, no. And he said, are you kidding me? I'm paying two million, three million, I'm going to give you four million dollars to play that one song. No. Well, anyway, the day of the concert comes and they do their set. And at the end of their set, you know, they take their bow like they used to do. And Lennon looks into the owner's box, so somewhere in that box is Finley, and he goes, and for you fans, we have one more song. And with that, McCartney launches into, ah, Kansas City. So they did it for free. They weren't going to do it to please Finley or take his money, but they would do it for the fans because obviously they were in Kansas City. I think that's a neat story. It tells you a little bit about their character. It's a great story, and, and I've never heard it other than from you. It's in Larry Kane's book on called Ticket to Ride. Uh, which he was with them on that tour. So, uh, and part of my, one of my memorabilia pieces is I have a ticket from that concert, which is neat because when I show people that ticket, it's like, well, that's just another, that's just a ticket from a Beatles concert. There's zillions. Yeah, but that concert was special. And then I can launch into that story. So, what are the great stories do you have in the, the last few minutes? I, one great story that I have is that I was, Fortunate enough to have interviewed, you know, Cousin Brucey and Kevin Howlett, but also Denny Lane. Oh, I just saw him. Yeah, he's great. I just saw him a week ago. He is he great. He played in Pauling. He played the entire Band on the Run album. And it's a Moody Blues song because he used to be in the Moody Blues. He's he great. And I, I interviewed him in a bar. <laughs> yeah. And we just sat there and he was gracious, charming, and interesting. But in the last minutes, do you have any more great little anecdotes or stories, especially even things going on now? You know, in- uh, going on now. Well, I was thinking of an anecdote from the end of the uh, the Beatles era. I don't know if it's a great anecdote, but it's interesting. Uh, everybody knows the song "Give Peace a Chance." Oh, sure. Right, and it's written by Lennon. The Beatles were breaking up when he wrote that song. He was at odds with McCartney. He wrote that song all by himself, maybe with Yoko Ono. And yet when you look at the record, it says, give peace a chance, Lennon-McCartney. So why would he give McCartney any credit on a song McCartney had nothing to do with at a time when he was at odds with McCartney and the song wasn't even released as a Beatles song? It's the plastic Ono band. You won't find give peace a chance on any collection of Beatles songs. Well, it's because a few months earlier, Lennon had written the ballad of John and Yoko. And he was in a rush to record it and release it because Lennon was very impetuous that way. 
But nobody was available except for McCartney. And McCartney agreed to help out because he thought that might get Lennon back into the Beatle fold, which it did, that didn't work. But anyway, McCartney helped out. So it's just the two of them on the ballad of John and Yoko, which was a number one hit. Lennon sings and plays the piano um, and the guitar, and McCartney plays the bass, and he sings and he plays the drums. And those are the only two Beatles on the ballad of John and Yoko. And the story goes, Lennon, in order to thank McCartney, gave him half the credit on his next song, which was Give Peace a Chance. Wow. Well, I know that there was one song Paul McCartney talked about in concert where he wished, even though everything was Lennon-McCartney, he wanted the credit to be McCartney-Lennon. Yeah, he's gone through that phase a couple of times. Well, he, he feels myth that... Uh, people think, don't realize that he wrote yesterday, for example. He said, McCartney said he was once at some piano lounge and some guy's playing the piano and playing some Beatles songs. And he looks over and he's got, the guy's got the sheet music to yesterday, but the, 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 the copy is a little crooked when they made the copy. And it just says Lennon Dash and the name McCartney's not even on it. <laughs> wow. All right, that, that was the fastest hour of radio. I, I guess I should say, and in the end, right, the love exactly. you make is equal to the love right. you take. But I really want to thank, first of all, I want to thank Steve Harnick for putting this all together because he's the one who introduced us. So thank yeah, you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And I appreciate that. Uh, shout out to Bob Marvin, my friend in Pauling. Because, uh, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I know Bob, and uh, I love Pauling and stuff like that. Um, I, I will well, definitely look forward be, to you coming by again. I, I will. There's a summer coming, and it'll be really cool to do that. I will be a fan of your show because I love all the stuff that you do, and I love your lectures. And I'm surprised you didn't go to to the uh, Purdue University, but that's an inside story joke. <laughs> right, that, that is. I tried to get my son to go there. He came close. It's a great place. All right. So the book is Into the Sky with Diamonds and BeatlesandFriendsRadio.com. And uh, if you have any questions for uh, Ron, you can send us to us at the station and we'll be glad to forward them because I know we have lots of Beatles fans and lots of space fans out there, especially because in Long Island, we were big on both the Beatles being at Chase Stadium and with Grumman and all, the, Grumman. And all yeah. the Grumman people. Totally. You know, so, so with that, I thank all of you for listening, being part of my radio family, for Ron's radio family. Uh, thank you for being a part of this show yeah. and we'll see you all in and one thank week. Thank you all also. Thank mm-hmm. you.